Okay, as we begin our second message here about honoring headship, we're going to be talking about honoring headship in public worship. And we're going to be looking at the rest of the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 4 to 16. <clears throat> Excuse me. At the beginning of the last message, I, I made a note of the Me Too and Church Too hashtags, and, which are telling this story of a long overdue reckoning for sexual abusers and harassers. And I mentioned that a common thread in much of the secular responses to the Me Too moment has been to call for more feminism. And one example of this uh, appeared last summer in the New York Times in this article that was titled, In the Me Too Era, Raising Boys to Be Good Guys. And the author of this was a guy named David McGlynn. And David McGlynn has two sons, ages 11 and 13. And more than anything, he says that he wants to raise his sons to be good people. And yet, he's terrified at the prospect of their growing up not to be good people, but to be abusers. Those who would fall under the censure of the Me Too hashtag. And so David McGlynn, he asks a psychiatrist colleague for some advice about how to raise his sons to be good men who won't abuse or exploit women. And the psychiatrist in this article responds, and the very first piece of advice is abandon chivalry. He says that boys need to stop being chivalrous and, pre and protective towards girls. And here's how the conversation unfolds. He says, I'm going to read to you a little bit from this article. <clears throat> One thing you want to be careful of, he said, is teaching boys to be chivalrous. We need to stop socializing boys to see women as needing protection. Wait a minute, I said, remembering my mother's lessons about holding open doors and giving up my seat on crowded buses. I'd long taught my sons to show respect, especially to women. Isn't chivalry a good thing? Holding doors and giving up seats are prime examples of courtesy, the psychiatrist said. Of course those are good things, but the idea that women should be cherished and put on pedestals fosters what is known as benevolent sexism, which subtly, mean, which subtly demeans women as fragile and less competent. It reinforces a sexual script in which a man takes charge while a woman remains passive. Even if well-intentioned, he said, benevolent sexism has been shown to correlate with hostile sexism, with threats to women, end quote. And I read this and I thought, well, this is really strange. It's almost as if, as if he's saying that protecting women correlates with not pro protecting women. It didn't make any sense to me. He also says that when a, a man protects a woman, he treats her as if she's fragile and less competent. But notice what he's done here. In saying this, he's obscured the very real differences between men and women. Differences which have inevitable, inevitable social obligations, don't they? Um, every man is not stronger than every woman. Nevertheless, it is true that men are by and large stronger than women. Does not that strength come with a social obligation? It has social consequences in my own household. If we hear a bump in the night, we don't send one of our daughters to go down and check it out. Nor do I send my wife down. 
It's my calling and responsibility to check it out. And it would be shameful and wrong if I sent my wife or my daughters out to do something that it is my privilege and responsibility to do, to care for them. And it's not a dishonor to them to recognize my strength as a man as a calling to protect my family or to even to protect others who are vulnerable and need, need protection. And yet, the feminist vision of this would label that as sexism, even benevolent sexism, on the way to hostile sexism. Do we really want to live in a world in which the real differences between men and women are ignored? Now, the confusion that we talked about this morning in the transgender moment, if you think that's unrelated to previous revisions that we made between the relationship between men and women, you'd be wrong. The one has led to another. Do we want to live in a world in which the social consequences of those differences between men and women are ignored? As if there are no appropriate role distinctions that God has given to us as men and women created in His image. Our cultural ethos affects the way that people read a text like the one that's before us this morning. On the one side, we have the feminists telling us that male head leadership in the church and the home is a great evil that needs to be eradicated. On the other side, we have Scripture telling us that male leadership in the church and in the home is God's design and is given for our blessing. And so again, we face the question, who do we believe on these things? Now open your Bibles, if you're not there already, to 1 Corinthians 11. And we're going to look at the rest of this passage where Paul's making the case that women have a responsibility to honor male headship during public worship. And actually, men have a responsibility for this too. Paul makes the case that the women need to honor male headship in public worship in a particular way. And this way is by wearing head coverings. Now, I'll just tip my hand up front. Um, I don't know where everybody is on uh, one particular point of interpretation in this text. I don't think this text is leading us to say that every woman has to wear a head covering in church. Okay, I'm going to explain uh, why I think that. I do think this text is telling us that we have to honor headship in church in ways that are appropriate to male and female self-presentations in church. So that's where we're going with this. And so Paul has three different lines of argument. He's going to give an argument from shame in verses 4 through 6, an argument from creation in verses 7 through 12, and then an argument from nature in verses 13 through 16. So an argument from shame, an argument from creation, an argument from nature. So the first one is an argument from shame in verses 4 through 6, where Paul's going to talk about what's disgraceful and what's not. Okay, So look at verse 4. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. So the first thing you notice when reading this is that Paul begins to switch back and forth between a literal meaning of the word head, like mikabeza, versus uh, the figurative meaning of head that we just talked about in verse 3, which means authority. Okay, So um, that means that a man disgraces, here it means in verse 4, a man disgraces his metaphorical head, Christ, because Christ is his authority, right? He disgraces his head, Christ, when he covers his literal head. But the question is, what's this covering and why would it be disgraceful to Christ for him to cover his head? 
Well, the NASB renders this covering as something on his head. The ESV has with his head covered. The uh, underlying Greek phrase is a little bit unusual, and that's why there's some ambiguity, I think, in the translations. Literally, he's talking about any man who prays or prophesies while having something down from his head. That's what he's talking about. Literally, it's having something down from the head. Now, some interpreters think that that's a reference to the man having long hair hanging down from his head. And that's what Paul means to warn men against. And so he doesn't want them to let their hair grow too long. And he clearly does talk about hair length later in the passage. Um, But verse 14 is using a different term from the one that uh, is used here in verse 4. And so I, I don't think he's talking about hair length here. I think he's talking about a garment that's worn over the head and that would hang down from the head. So it's a head covering. And so in this case, it could have been a part of a man's toga, maybe drawn up over his head and hanging down. Whatever it was, Paul has in mind some sort of a garment covering the head. Now the question remains, why is it disgraceful for a man to cover his head like this? Well, in context, the disgrace comes from concealing his status as the image and glory of God, if you look in verse 7. So the disgrace is also connected to a particular context, praying and prophesying. So it's not that he can never cover his head. It's just he's not supposed to do it in the context of praying and prophesying. And where does that happen? It happens at church, okay, when they gather for worship. So it's not that he can never cover his head. He's just not supposed to do it in that context, which means during his participation in the church's corporate worship. In that context, a man must not disgrace Christ by covering his head. But he says the same is not true for the woman. Look what he says in verse 5. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. Now I've just read again from the NASB, which renders this as every woman, but you'll remember from the first message that the word for woman can actually refer to a woman in general or to a wife in particular. So what is he referring to here? Every woman or wives, what's he talking about? Um, I agree with Tom Schreiner who says that Paul uses the term with a kind of fluidity at this point. And even though Paul refers to women in general, he glides over to the relationship between husbands and wives, especially in verses 4 and 5. So I think there's actually a lesson for us in that. In part, in the first message, we learned that the headship obligation is a covenantal obligation for marriage. All men are not the head of all women. A husband is the head of his wife in the covenant of marriage. But think about what that means. It means that headship within the covenant of marriage has implications for the entire covenant community. I think that's what Paul's starting to get into here. The covenant community, the church, must be so ordered that its life and worship never undermine the headship of a husband and a wife in marriage. So the reason that we have an all-male eldership um, is because of marriage and the way it's ordered. The leadership norms in the church are to reflect that and not undermine that. And so Paul wishes to say that a, a woman comports herself The way that she comports herself, even in what she wears, can either affirm or disaffirm the male leadership within the church. That's what's happening here in in Corinth. How how is that? Well, notice that it's not merely the men who pray and prophesy when the church gathers. Did you catch that? The women are praying and prophesying in the assembly. 
Paul does not rebuke the women for praying and prophesying. That's not his point here. Uh, If we had more time, I would explain why he doesn't rebuke this. It has to do with what the definition of prayer and prophecy are. It's different from what he's forbidding in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, let the women keep silent in the churches. If we had more time, I would, maybe we can talk about it in the Q&A. I could relate those two passages. But for now, just notice they're praying and prophesying. I happen to believe prophecy is a gift that has ceased. It's a revelatory gift that has ceased. But they were praying and prophesying, so they were speaking in church. Okay, He doesn't wish for them to stop praying and prophesying. He merely wants them to do so in a way that signals their respect for the male leadership of the church. That's what's going on here. And in that culture, it meant wearing a head covering. So these are culturally encoded norms. Okay, In that culture, it was shameful for a woman to have her head uncovered in public. It was customary for women to wear a head covering in public to mark her off as a private person intent on guarding her purity and so maintaining the honor of her husband or her father. And so the covering showed deference to her husband or father. To go without the covering disgraced her husband or her father because she would be implying that she, she were on the same level as them with respect to headship. So Paul says that when a wife prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she disgraces her husband in that sense. I think that's what's going on here. Because of that dynamic within the marriage covenant, All the women in the congregation should observe this custom of wearing a head covering. Look at verse 6. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. And the rationale here is based on a cultural norm. In that culture, it was considered shameful for a woman to shave her head. So Paul's making analogy between the uncovered head of and the shaved head of a woman. If a woman's going to go without a head covering, which is what some of them were presumably doing, they should just go ahead and shave their head, which none of them were doing, because that was considered shameful by all. And so he was saying, if they understand how shameful it is to shave their heads, they need to see um, that, that going without a covering is equally shameful. His bottom line is simple. When pr- women pray and prophesy in the church, they need to honor headship by wearing a head covering. Now, there's a, I know this all sounds obscure, it really is, does relate to, to things, okay? There are a number of important items of application in, in, these, in verses 4 through 6. But I want to f- focus, first of all, on the one obvious thing. Paul's assuming that women are praying and prophesying when the church gathers for worship. They're not totally disengaged from speaking in the worship. They do pray. Um, they do prophesy. I think prophecy has passed away. Maybe scripture reading would be a virtual equivalent in, in our context. But that, that is happening. That is another whole discussion there, but Paul is, is saying that. So um, I'm not going to adjudicate um, how this fleshes out in your churches. You can talk about it in the Q&A if you want. However this fleshes out in your church, what this text is telling us is that when we gather, we have to do it in a way, and if you have men and women um, participating in any way during a worship service, this text is telling us to do it in a way that doesn't undermine headship. And in particular, the headship of the leaders of the congregation. So Paul is exhorting in that way, and it's kind of an argument from, from shame. What's disgraceful and what's not. Second is an argument from creation. Look at verse 7. 
For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now maybe you notice that Paul is riffing on Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 here. God says in 126, which we saw this morning, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, except here... Paul says that man is the image and glory of God rather than the image and likeness of God. Did you catch that? He's riffing on Genesis 1.26, but he adds the word glory in there. Why does he say it that way? I think he's trying to say that a man's head should be uncovered so as not to conceal the image of God. Glory, in this context, is the opposite of disgrace. And so... Um, the man is to keep his image-bearing head uncovered in order to glorify God. That's simply what he's saying here. But notice that it says that the woman is the glory of man. So if, God is, if the man is supposed to honor God by keeping his head uncovered, the woman is the glory of man, Paul knows that the woman is equally created in the image of God. That's why he doesn't say that she is the image of man. Did you catch that? Because she's in the image of God too. He just says that she's the glory of man, which means that's a focus on her obligation to bring honor and respect to the man. But again, you begin to see how Paul has the covenant of marriage in the background of his thinking on that because of what he said in verses 2 through 3. When a wife is a woman of honor and faithfulness, she brings honor to her husband. Proverbs eleven sixteen: a gracious woman attains honor. Proverbs, in the Septuagintal version, it says a gracious wife brings glory to her husband. Probably has that in mind. Well, why does she have that obligation to bring honor to her husband? Look at verse 8. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. That's an appeal to the order of creation. She is supposed to honor and respect her husband because it reflects the Old Testament principle of primogenitor, the idea that the one born first has preeminence in leadership. If you look at Adam and Eve, who was made first? Adam. And then Eve. And Paul's just observing that. Man does not originate from woman, but woman from the man. That order of creation establishes a pattern of leadership and helpership. Verse 9. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. That's simply a reference to the fact then in Genesis 2, the woman is called a helper for the man. He's called to lead and provide and protect <clears throat> in that first family. She's called to come alongside and to help in the task that God has, has given him. Notice, as we said before, that God established that headship relationship between husband and wife before any sin had come into the world. Headship is not a result of the fall. Headship is a result of God's good creation and is given to us for our good and flourishing. To ignore or pervert headship is to go against what's good for us. And so if that's the case, look what Paul says in verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, my translation has symbol of authority. Does the ESV say that too? Symbol of authority? It, it symbol is actually inserted into the text. It literally says that a woman ought to have authority over her head. I think that that's closer to what Paul means here. She's supposed to be exercising authority over her own head. And it means she should exercise authority over her own literal head by covering it so as not to expose it to the indignities that we talked about earlier. Because it was not feminine and it was considered to be disgraceful for those reasons that we discussed. 
So he doesn't want the women to give the impression that there's no difference between a man and a woman in the way that they externally comport themselves. He, he doesn't want that to happen. Paul knows that it's possible to subvert cultural norms in such a way so as to obscure the difference between male and female. And so Paul says, no, don't do that. Why? Look at the next part of the verse. Because of the angels. <laughs> oh, that clears things up. Uh, this is a notoriously obscure of expression. Why does he say because of the angels? Um, I think it just reflects Paul's belief that when the church gathers, an, um, uh, angels are present because when, wherever God draws near, so do all the heavenly beings. You'll know like in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. Right? He thinks that heaven is bearing witness there when he, he makes appeal to God. So the angels that are present in their corporate worship indicates that heaven is looking on at their worship. And the Corinthians are in the presence of God when they gather. So they need to honor the headship principle that God established at creation. But having said this, Paul gives a short qualifier. Look at verse 11. So you got the order of creation reflecting headship. But then he says this, however, in the Lord... Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Paul doesn't want the men to think that the order of creation makes the man into a higher order of being than the woman. There's no superiority and inferiority of being. Every man... It is true that the first woman came from the first man. But guess what? Every man since has come from woman. <laughs> every single one of them. Which means that every man in the congregation and in our congregations came from woman. So there's an interdependence here, isn't there? And it shows that we cannot declare our independence from each other. God alone is the source of us all, which is a reminder that we are all actually created in His image, just like Genesis 1 teaches so Paul's bottom line here is that a man ought not to cover his head in the church, but that a woman sh should. Why? To honor the headship principle. That, that's all he's trying to say here. And this is where you're going to have to discern a distinction between fundamental theological truth and changing social conventions that reflect that truth. Even though social conventions like head coverings may change, the underlying theological truth never changes. And the underlying theological truth is the obligation to honor headship in the assembly. Now, um, many people who deny the Bible's teaching about male headship in the congregation like to point to our interpretation as an inconsistency, the interpretation that I've just given to you. And uh, there's one evangelical feminist named Rebecca Grotius who actually she, she died recently. But she claims in her book, Good News for Women, she says that, hey, if you think male leadership, male eldership in 1 Timothy 2.12 is based on the order of creation and is therefore a timeless principle, head coverings are based on the order of creation in 1 Corinthians 11. And yet you don't accept wearing the head coverings as a timeless principle. That shows that you're just picking and choosing your timeless principles. Your order of creation argument therefore is bogus. That's how they kind of write that out. Well, that's wrong actually. The order of creation doesn't establish head coverings. The order of creation establishes headship. Head coverings are a social manifestation of headship. 
And those social institutions can change, but the headship principle doesn't change. Head coverings don't have the same meaning in every cultural setting, do they? They, they just don't. So in our cultural head coverings don't have the same meaning that they had in the first century. I hope that's clear by now. Um, that's why most churches, I know that there have been some in the past um, that do, but most churches, ones that take the Bible seriously, they don't have women wearing head coverings. That doesn't mean that we can just ignore this section of Scripture. It means that we need to ask ourselves if there's anything in our culture that relates to the headship principle. Because the headship principle is something that we still have to honor when we gather. If a woman comes to church and begins dressing in a way that self-consciously ignores the social distinctions between male and female, let's say she comes to church dressed like a man, in such a way that she clearly wants to look masculine, does that honor her husband or dishonor him? Does that honor male leadership in the church or dishonor it? Let's say if a man comes to church and dresses in a way that is feminine, let's say by wearing a dress and maybe wearing some makeup, does that honor Christ as his head or does it dishonor Christ by obscuring a distinction between male and female that ought to be clear? See what I'm saying here? He's telling these women they have to adorn themselves in a way that doesn't erase the distinction between male and female. Because if you do that, you're dishonoring headship. If, if a woman, or even a man for that matter, comes to church and she reads the scripture or prays, but before doing so, she decides to deliver a little sermonette, does that honor pastoral leadership of the church or dishonor it? That goes for men or women, actually. Uh, there are ways to undermine headship in our own congregations that have nothing to do with head coverings. You see what I'm saying here? And it falls to us to know when flouting social conventions actually obscures a distinction that God intends for us to make clear. There's a reason why in Deuteronomy, oh, what is it, 24 or 22, I forget. Um, in Deuteronomy, it says that a man shall not dress as a woman, a woman shall not dress as a man, for it's an abomination to the Lord. It forbids cross-dressing and calls it an abomination. Because from the very beginning, it was always wrong to obscure the distinction between male or female. You're fundamentally doing something socially that's a dishonor to God. That's where 1 Corinthians 11 relates to what we talked about this morning. Cross-dressing in Scripture is not a moral, uh, morally ambiguous thing. It's, it's um, condemned in Scripture. Uh, you're not supposed to present yourself as the other sex. It dishonors headship. It dishonors God's design of your body. Um, whatever is happening in any social, cultural situation, there needs to be a manifest distinction between male and female in the way that we present ourselves. So it dishonors headship when we don't do that. And he, so he's giving an argument for creation from this. Last thing here, he gives an argument from nature in verses 13 through 16. Look what he says. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Now this is a rhetorical question that appeals to, I think, common sense. It means something like, hey, Corinthians, you should already know that it's not proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered. How do they know that? Well, verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? 
But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. The reason that they know that it's fitting, it's not fitting for a woman to pray with her head uncovered is because nature teaches that to them. And here Paul enters into another analogy, and the analogy relates to hair length. But it relates to nature as well. What exactly does nature teach us? Did you know that there's one other text in the Bible where Paul talks about nature in connection with men and women? I've already taught on it this weekend. Which one is it? Men and women, Paul talks about nature. You remember? Romans 1, right? It's in Romans 1.26 where Paul talks about homosexuality as against nature. Nature in that verse refers to the sexual complementarity of male and female bodies. Homosexuality goes against nature because it goes against God's design differences for male and female bodies. I think that Paul has something like that in mind here when he talks about nature. What does nature, God's design and creation, teach us about male and female? It teaches us that there's a biological difference between male and female. Virtually every culture on earth has social conventions that mark those differences. So that men look like men and women look like women. The hairstyles and the dress may change from culture to culture, but the need to manifest the natural distinction between male and female doesn't change. See what I'm saying here? And where that natural distinction is obscured, you have some kind of perversion on your hands. So, and, and that's, of course, what we're dealing with in our culture, where you have a, an obscuring of the distinction between male and female in the way that people present themselves. So I think that Paul is saying that nature teaches that the distinction should be manifest. And in Paul's culture, hair length was a part of that distinction. Men were supposed to have short hair and women long hair. Long hair on a man suggested that he was weak or soft or effeminate. It suggested sexual ambiguity and hints of moral perversion. Short hair on a woman suggested masculinity and dishonoring headship. So hair length in that first century setting was a cultural manifestation of God-given natural differences between the sexes. How do we know, this is the question that everybody has about this, how do we know that it's a cultural manifestation of a natural difference and not a natural ma manifestation of a natural difference? Well, one way to know that, and, and the reason that, that people ask that question is because they're like, well, so how long is my hair supposed to be? Or how short can my hair be? When is it too long? When is it too short? I appreciate that question. That's not the point, okay? If it were the point, Paul would have told us but it doesn't say here, does it? It doesn't say eight inches is too long. <laughs> Three inches is too short. It doesn't say that. It doesn't give that specificity. What does it specify? Just that the difference has to be manifest between the man and the woman. Too long is defined in, in, uh, in relationship to what the man is doing. Too short is defined in relationship to what the woman is doing. He's saying they just can't be mixed up. So one way we know that is because he doesn't say how long is too long and how short is too short. He doesn't prescribe certain lengths here. The issue is, is that if you present yourself in a way that's indistinct from the opposite sex, it's a dishonor to nature, even if the distinctions are culturally encoded norms. So the reason I'm making a, a thing out of this is because there's a feminine way to have short hair, there's a masculine way to have long hair in our culture, I think. Th that's not the point. The point is, are you trying to present yourself as the other? 
If you're obscuring that, then there's a problem. So look at the end of verse 15. He presses the analogy to head coverings. Her hair is given to her for a covering. Verse 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. By which Paul means, if you don't like honoring headship in worship, you need to know that as a church, you are out on an island. If you want to follow me and the other apostles, Paul is saying, you won't fight me on this. You will turn your heart towards honoring headship in the way that I'm telling you to honor it. And Paul has given them three arguments to support honoring headship. An argument from shame, an argument from creation, an argument from nature. If all of these arguments are valid, and I think they are, what, what could we conclude for this? <clears throat> Let me summarize. The thing that we need to conclude is that the way that we operate our worship services. Remember, this whole thing is about worship, isn't it? When they gather for worship, these men were praying and prophesying. You had some women praying and prophesying. But they were doing it in a way that seemed to dishonor headship. Paul is saying you should conduct your worship services in a way that manifests an honoring of headship. Which means you're as a church, when you gather for worship, you have to take into account the whole counsel of God about what he says about church leadership, about what he says about teaching. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says, I don't allow women to teach or to exercise authority over man, but to be quiet. For why? Because Adam was created first and then Eve, which is an argument on order of creation. He's just arguing that the male, that male, that the eldership is supposed to be all male and the teaching ministry of the church is supposed to attach to that with authority. So here's the thing, and this is probably the big bottom line thing as far as churches are concerned. The order of our church's leadership and worship is not supposed to in any way undermine the order of leadership within the home. And if you adopt an order of leadership in church in favor of a feminist equality vision, you will end up undermining the order of relationships within the home. These two things are supposed to get, go together. They're not supposed to be in conflict. Last thing I'll say, he's talking about how these Christians are supposed to come together and how leadership is supposed to work in the church and in the home. That's clearly what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11. That has implications, though, because he's saying that there are social customs that can either affirm headship or disaffirm it. And he's saying, as a universal creation principle, we have to affirm the creation distinctions. And that has implications for the transgender comp conversation we were just having. It has implications for the, the, uh, the, the conversation about homosexuality that we're having. And we need to see all of it. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and teaching of your word. Use it again to conform us to your image. Help us not just to think right, but to live right. To honor you in the way that we gather for worship the way we think about headship. And Lord, I pray that we would love your design and not rebel against it. So Lord, I ask for you to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are going to go ahead and break for lunch. Uh,
At this time, uh, I just want to let you know we're going to start back up again in our evening question or our afternoon question and answer uh, time at, at 1.30. So it, you're free to go do whatever it is that you'd like to do for lunch. Uh, just be back here at 1.30. Uh, if you are here for the pastors, uh, church staff, uh, family, that whole uh, church officer lunch uh, Q&A time with with Dr. Burke, uh, I want to kind of give you directions. Uh, if you were to go out this doorway right here, this this entrance, go to the right and go down these first set of stairs here to the left that would that would take you outside. Uh, don't go outside because that's not where it's going to be. Uh, turn to the right there and go down again another flight, and then and you'll be in a hallway, which is their basement area. Uh, the first door on the left is room 30, and that's where we'll be uh, eating lunch uh, this this uh, afternoon. So. With that said, uh, you're dismissed. If you have any questions, oh, also we have a uh, this uh, offering plate. If you have a question, uh, this is how we're going to kind of tackle the questions for the for the afternoon. If you have a question, write it down, put it in this. Uh, before we start the session, we'll we'll gather all these up, and and that way we can kind of keep things orderly and moving during the the Q and A time. So, if there's not anything else, uh, we'll just uh, dismiss. So thank you. <laughs>